gentlemen. Welcome wrestling fans worldwide to Knoxville and the great Smoky Mountains for the Ron Fuller Tennessee Studcast. Six feet nine inches tall, 265 pounds. This historic podcast from one of the most respected and successful wrestlers and promoters will follow the footsteps of one of the largest and oldest wrestling families on the planet. The Tennessee Stud, Ron Fuller. Through 93 years and four generations. The Stud has arrived. Old school or new fan, this unique broadcast will educate and captivate as Ron details decades of professional wrestling's growth with truly unforgettable stories. I want those people out there at home to hear the stud. Sit back and enjoy the ride with the Tennessee stud. The Tennessee stud. You will learn that name. You will remember it. And now, the stud here. Please welcome the Tennessee stud, Ron Fuller, and your host, Jeff Maldron. Welcome, everybody, to another edition of Ron Fuller's Studcast. I am Jeff Maldron, and it is a pleasure to be with you once again as the Tennessee stud takes us down that road of wrestling history. And now, the man of the hour, the Tennessee stud himself, Ron Fuller. Ron, how you doing today, man? I'm doing great, Jeff. Glad to be here as usual. Got a good one today again. A lot of information in this one. We're going to be touching a lot of different bases. And um, this gold uh, lightning saddled up, and I'm ready to roll, my man. So Okay. Well, where are we going to go today, Ron? Well, we're going to finish out. Obviously, uh, we didn't get to the end of last week's studcast. Uh, we're going to uh, actually talk about uh, the big t- Southeastern Tag Tournament that we were talking about last week. Uh, we're going to discuss the attendance for that tournament show. and. Uh, we're going to also talk about uh, how we did uh, the in the rest of the cities uh, during that week, uh, basically the first week in March of 1976. Give you some of the total attendance for the week and uh, payoffs for the week. We're going to talk about uh, March 76 uh, when it was uh, the first time ever in Southeastern history that I end up uh, being able to run Knoxville only two times in one month because of the unavailability of buildings. We're going to discuss that a little bit and. Uh, how I can prevent that. And uh, and then uh, we're going to uh, have a brief discussion about my booking skills <laughs> and the development of what booking skills I have at this point and, uh, and also uh, ownership skills of Southeastern. Kind of going to take a look back at the first 14 months of operation of Southeastern Wrestling. We're going to talk about the TV of March the 6th, 1976, even though we're good discussing uh, running the Coliseum, 10 days later. Uh, and then we're going to talk about our learning tree today is a really good one. It's about uh, something that we really, really haven't talked about. And uh, it's a, a series of great questions from the same person, obviously, about the importance of a wrestler to learn the art of selling. So uh, I think we're going to have a good one for him today. And uh, I think I'm just going to head, uh, head on out, if you don't mind, Jeff. I'm going to jump right on the old horse and let's get rolling. Well, if he's ready, let's go. Okay, uh, let's begin today by finishing, like I said, last week's studcast. I want to remind everyone, actually, of the actual card. for It, it was on a Sunday afternoon, February 29th, in Jill Howard Park's indoor arena. Uh, the card was built around, obviously, the Southeastern Tag Championship that we'd been advertising for a month. We had the new belts made. We'd been showing them. There were five great teams in this one-day tournament. 
the current Tennessee Tag Champions, Norvell Austin and Butch Malone, who were managed by Homer O'Dell, Robert Fuller and Jimmy Golan's in the tournament. The superstars are in the tournament. Ron and Don Wright are in the tournament. And Don and Al Green in the same tournament. Uh, so this tournament's going to require in itself four matches. And there's two single matches on this card, two pretty darn good single matches. The opening match on this card, the Southeastern champion Don Carson against Charlie Cook. And uh, I'm going to be wrestling against Tor Tanaka on this card, and he's going to be managed by Homer Odell. So let's start with the first match of the afternoon, uh, which is that Southeastern championship. Don Carson facing off against Charlie Cook. He is the champion, but this is not a title match. Just the fact that the Southeastern champion is on the first match of the card says a lot about the strength of this particular card. It's a really, really good card. Charlie Cook, very popular wrestler by this point, Southeastern, but he's not good enough to take Carson, and Carson's experience is obviously going to lead to the victory, and, uh, and they have a great match. It lasted almost 30 minutes, but Don Carson got the win. Then in the first match of the Southeastern Tag Tournament, when it got way, the pairings had been drawn on the last TV show. We talked about it on the last studcast, and now we're basically starting the tournaments. The superstars uh, are in that very first match. They are escorted to the ring by their good buddy, Don Carson. And uh, he was wearing his southeastern belt down to the ring, which uh, didn't surprise anybody, I'm sure. He was awfully proud of being the champion. Uh, they got the afternoon off to an, uh, an enraged start. They were in the ring against, of all people, <laughs> Ron and Don Wright. So, by gosh, the crowd was really up for this one. And uh, as they got to the ring, Carson and the superstars went first, and uh, they got in the ring and raised their hands all together in unison. And the crowd obviously exploded with some boos right off the start. Um, before the ring announcer, Phil Rainey, could even introduce him, Carson took away his microphone and announced that, before this afternoon's over, all of you fans are now looking at the three men that are going to hold all the Southeastern championships. Well, obviously, they got another explosion of booze. Ron and Don finally came to the ring. It looked like they were being escorted by half the crowd. I mean, that crowd was mobbed around them. They couldn't get to the ring hardly for the people. So when they got there and came into the ring, obviously, they got a totally different result of what the superstars and Carson they got. Everyone in the building was on their feet cheering by the time they got there. After a brutal four-week program between Ron Wright and Don Carson, in which Ron Wright had had two black eyes and some stitches to, to close a wound that, uh, from a hard way that he got, uh, the fans were really ready to see the Wright brothers have a shot at the superstars. The building was just electric for a second match on the card. Uh, I watched from the top before the match started. I already had goosebumps. I, it was one of those matches I knew that was just going to tear the building down. Carson stayed after the introduction of the Wright brothers and uh, wanted to manage his men, <laughs> as he called them. Uh, the Wright said, obviously, no. And uh, they, called, they, they had the referee get on the microphone and call for the police. And the police came down and took Carson back to the dressing room. Fans loved that. So rights and the crowds, the, everybody's on fire in the building by this time. Stupertars could do nothing wrong. You know, nothing right, actually. They they really got off to a bad start. I watched the match. They just began making mistake after mistake. Toward the end of the match, the rights were in total control. And it appeared like they were going to beat them. They were going to win uh, and beat the superstars. 
And then Carson, obviously, he suddenly arrives back at ringside and then he jumps up on the apron as just about the same time as Ron Wright's covering one of the superstars. The ref, obviously, he's got to go get Carson off the apron. And Ron's sitting there waiting on a three count. Uh, Don had the other superstar in the headlock and he was punching him. And, uh, and there's the referee trying to get Carson off the apron and Don just shoots the guy he's got. Don gets fired into, into the referee's back. And uh, obviously the referee and Carson collide and Carson goes off onto the floor, which the fans like, but the referee and Don went down in the ring. The superstar then threw Don uh, out, out onto the floor where, you know, where Carson was standing. And, uh, and he went over and stopped Ron right in the back. Ron's still waiting on the count from the referee. He doesn't realize that the referee's not even in the ring. Uh, the superstars then uh, threw Ron Wright over the top rope. And uh, Carson's standing out there on the floor. He's already up on his feet. And Don Wright gets up. Carson loads his glove, and he lets him have it. Carson just grabs Don Wright. He rolls him back into the ring, and he went back to the dressing room. He knew it was over. Uh, one of the superstars covered Don, and the referee counted him out. The ref finally regained his feet, and he counted Don right out. The other superstar stopped Ron from saving his brother. Winner of a match in round one was obviously the superstars. Match two of round one was up next. First team to enter in the ring. This time it's Norville Austin, Butch Malone, obviously managed by Homer Odell. And they're against Don and Al Green. Now, this is a funny combination for a tag match. Uh, two heel teams, and uh, normally the fans hated Don and Al Green, but, uh, you know, they had to pick a, <laughs> who they wanted to cheer for in a way. So, you know, Homer and his boys had more heat than Don and Al. That's what it was, and uh, this match was very interesting because of it. By the time it ended, Don and Al Green were almost pure baby faces. I mean, the crowd was really cheering them. They wanted to see uh, Homer and his boys lose. Uh, so. Homer ends up uh, kind of screwing Don and Al out of the victory. And uh, Homer hits uh, Al in the back of the head with his steel helmet. And obviously, uh, that's the end of that one. And they're counted out. And uh, so then Les Thatcher comes down the ring. And he brings the same box that he had on the personality profile of the television before. And uh, there's two slips in there this time. Obviously, there's two teams that's been eliminated. So the superstars with Carson come back down to the ring to pick from the box. And uh, obviously the winners of whoever picks from the box, which at this point is going to be the superstars and Carson. And it's also going to be Norvell and his partner against whoever they pull from the box. So as they drew, Les put the box in the middle of the ring. He had a table that was set up there and Carson Homer, they got face to face like they were going to go at it a little bit. Crowd really wanted to see that. But uh, referee got between them, then Les got between them as well. And they flipped the coin to see which one's going to choose first from the box. Homer won the toss. He picked the slip and uh, he handed it to Les. Don Carson picked the slip for the superstars and handed it to Les. Les made the announcement that the superstars had picked the bye, which means they were going to automatically avoid wrestling in the second round and they were going to go straight to the finals. The crowd booed as they and Carson left the ring. And then he announced that Austin and Malone, managed by Homer, would wrestle in the next round against Robert Fuller and Jimmy Golan. There was a big round of applause about this because, you know, they, now they're going to get two legitimate baby faces in there against them. Uh, then let's hit Homer and his boys with a really bad news is Robert and Jimmy were just about in the ring. 
he announced that that match would begin immediately. <laughs> and, uh, you know, they hadn't had the opportunity to get over their first match, you know, so it was difficult for them to be able to, to jump into that. And uh, Homer went crazy, grabbed the microphone away from Les, and uh, Homer started screaming that it wasn't right. You know, his team had no rest, and, uh, you know, he wasn't ready to go. And, and you know, actually, he was he was uh, making a lot of stuff up because his team really hadn't even been in the ring yet. But they end up, and in this second match, they're going to end up going against Rob and Jimmy Golden. And uh, this is in the semifinals, basically, of the tournament. So uh crowd had no sympathy for him, and the building was going nuts as the announcement were made for the two teams. Uh, now Homer was on the floor. And, uh, and he was even crazier, man. He was screaming and ranting and he took off his black jacket and he threw it on the concrete and the fans went nuts. Uh, now Austin and Malone are in there and they're going right at it with Robert and Jimmy. And this match was off to a great start. Everybody in the building was on their feet before it started, actually. It was a wild tag match. Butch Malone was already on Homer's hit list and the junkyard dog. That's what Norville Austin started calling himself long before. The uh, gentleman down there in Louisiana took that name. So Homer Homer was there. Uh, he was upset. Uh, the dog is already. Uh, they had both, uh, you know, and Malone was, he'd had a problem already from the week before and from actually two weeks before in which he had, had hit the wrong guys. He'd hit Homer and he'd hit Norvell with his gimmick that he had in his tights. And uh, so this uh, and he had lost the Texas Death Match for him, and uh, they were really, really upset with him. So at the end of this match, Norvell's got Robert, and he's out on the apron of the ring. He's holding Rob, and uh, Homer screams at Malone to go across the opposite side of the ring and come back and hit Robert with a real good high knee. And uh, when he went for that knee, uh, Rob moved, and Malone obviously hit Norvell in the face. Norvell flew off the apron. And he landed on top of Homer, which <laughs> which the crowd loved, but it wasn't such a good thing for Malone. So Homer would not let Malone do anything more in the match without getting out on the floor. He wanted to really chew him out. And so was Austin. Austin was upset, too. And Homer ends up slapping Malone's face. Uh, Malone got really upset by that. And then he just pushed right back into Homer's face. And when that happened, the building stood up. It's like, wow, we, we want to see this. Norvell sneaked around Malone's back, and he grabbed him. And when he did, Homer took his helmet off, and he nailed Malone in the face with his helmet. And Kasha, it, it opened him up. I mean, it really opened him up bad. He, he ended up with a big cut from it. Uh, the two of them then grabbed Malone, who was pretty much laying unconscious on the cement at this point. And just threw him back in the ring. And uh, Rob's standing there, and the referee's standing there. So Rob covered him, and the referee counted him out. So both Homer and Norvell stood on the floor and watched. They never even tried to make a save. The crowd loved it, obviously, because Rob and Jimmy had, had made it into the finals. They were going on. And they announced that Rob and Jimmy were in the finals versus the superstars. And after Rob and Jimmy left the ring, Homer and Austin got in the ring. Malone's just laying there. He's not moving. And they started putting the boots to him. It was ridiculous. And it hadn't been for Ron Wright. Ron Wright came down to the ring. He, he was watching it. He saw that Malone was out. He was unconscious and he was bleeding really bad. 
And Ron Wright kind of chased them off. Don showed up pretty about the same time. And uh, after they left the ring, Ron and Don got Malone uh, arms around their shoulders and they helped him back, not to the heels dressing room, but to their dressing room, to, to my dressing room, the babyface dressing room. Tanaka and I were in the next special event match. Uh, there were not going to be any matches in Knoxville following week because uh, we were only going to wrestle twice in March in, in Knoxville. So the winner of the Tanaka and my match was going to get a shot two Sundays later in the Coliseum again against the Southeastern Wrestling Champion Don Carson. Homer was at ringside again for this one, obviously. And I was Tanaka's best opponent. And uh, and fans knew it. This was a big challenge for Tanaka and, and certainly a big challenge for me. We'd never, ever had a match together. We ended up having a great match. And I kept moving really fast and trying to keep him off guard. I hit him with a couple of big drop kicks. And as he was prepared to chop me, I, I ended up with two feet in his face. Uh, he got his heat at the end, and I made a comeback on him. And for the first time in Southeastern, I knocked him down with a punch. He would not gone down with anybody hitting him. So he finally started throwing me out on the floor and drawing the ref. And every time I went out, Homer put the boots to me on the floor. I would get back in, uh, and he would throw me out the opposite side. Homer come around and do that to me again. They did that to me two or three times. And then finally, I got in the ring, and Tanaka hit me with a pretty good chop. And I went down, and referee's going to count me out. And Homer says, no, no. He says, pull him up. And when uh, he pulled me up, you know, about that time, Butch Malone came back with his head all wrapped, uh, he had a bloody bandage on it, and he just tore into Homer Odell on the floor. Boy, the crowd just went crazy. I mean, uh, they weren't expecting that. And uh, I slid back into the ring, and Tanaka wasn't paying any attention to me. He was more concerned about what Malone was doing to poor Homer out there on the floor. And he kind of reached over the top rope to try to grab Malone, and I just sneaked in behind him and cradled him between the legs, slid him back over me, and uh, covered him. And the ref got a three count. And he and I left the ring as, as soon as we could. Uh, Malone followed me back to the dressing room, but he's a ways behind me. But, boy, he was covered up with fans. I mean, they were really thanking him, and they, were, they really started to perceive him as a baby face uh, about that same time. Things were really beginning to happen that day at Southeastern. The finals of the tournament. Maybe the match of the day, obviously. The beautiful new belts been on display, and they brought them into the ring. And uh, this tournament really meant some. Uh, it was a great day, and it added to the moment of the belts being there. And the superstars were two very experienced veterans, Dick Dunn and Leon Baxter. And uh, they were at the beginning of a great program, and a long program they're going to work with Robert Jimmy. Robert and Jimmy are two tremendously talented young stars. And uh, these are going to be great matches that they have. It's going to build Southeastern, every one of these tag matches that these two teams have with each other. Uh, and they are both a great example of tag team wrestling. Both teams worked all kinds of spots, popped the crowd, and impressed everybody in the match. It was a tremendous match. Uh, it was even with both teams right down to the very end. In fact, uh, at the very end of the match, which was really unusual, Dunn got the Boston Crab on Jimmy Golden. Now, that's what those two superstars were winning every match with. But at the same time that Dunn put the Boston Crab on Jimmy, 
Robert was beating the heck out of Baxter, and he put the fuller leg lock on Baxter. So the referee stood between both sets of teams there. You had uh, Golden down in a crab, and you had uh, Baxter in the fuller leg lock. And he just kept asking who's going to give. He was waiting to see who was going to give first. The crowd obviously had no idea who was going to win this. And they probably went 30 seconds with very painful holes. And believe me, those are painful holes, both the Boston Crab and that Fuller leg lock. And the crowd remained just on their feet. And then finally, as, as he couldn't take any more, Baxter began to wave his arms. And the crowd recognized that he was giving up the, the referee ringing the bell. And they raised Rob and Jimmy's hands and gave him the belt. So it was pretty much a phenomenal day for Southeastern wrestling. It was a great event. Spectacular, spectacular day. Okay, Ron, what was the attendance that day and for the entire first week of March? Okay, uh, Chilhowie Park building was full. Had 4,000 fans in it. That's all it would hold. I'd been adding seats for about a year, but I couldn't get it to any, any bigger level than that. The only way I was going to get more people in is if fire marshal didn't show up. So it was time to increase prices and uh, get the full value for every seat. Once you start selling out and you've got no more seats available, then your product is uh, worthy of a, of a higher ticket price. And that's what's going to happen. This is going to be the last week. This show in February will be the last week at the lower prices. And prices are then going to be increased to the Coliseum level of prices for every event, whether it's in the Coliseum or Chilhowie Park. That's going to give me opportunity to do about $2,000 more gross in Chilhowie Park than what I had been able to do because the prices were lower there than they were at the Coliseum. Prices are going to be the same everywhere, and uh, I think that's good. And I think by being able to raise the price, and the thing that spoke volumes to me is I never heard a single complaint from anybody about raising the price. Uh, I would listen to the fans fairly closely, too, and especially after uh, the prices were raised. I was concerned that that might hurt my business. The final card in February 1976, I, we hadn't raised the prices yet, but uh, in the five other cities that we ran that week, our attendance went up about 500 people. So we drew about 11,500 people in the five cities that we ran other than Knoxville and another 4,000 in Knoxville for a total of about 15,500. Uh, the gross was slightly uh, smaller for the week, 40000 compared to forty two from the week before where the Coliseum prices were in effect. But the wrestlers end up averaging about that same $800 a week. Everybody's pretty happy with that, that amount of money. It was good money back in that time. Okay, Ron, so I understand you had an unusual problem in March of 1976. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, I did. Uh, you know, uh, for the first time ever since I'd been at Southeastern, I had a situation in which neither of my two buildings were available on either Friday or Sunday for two weeks. So in March 76, I could only have Knoxville running twice, uh, Sunday, March 14th in the Coliseum and Friday, March 26th back in Joey Park. Didn't even have a Sunday. Had to take a Friday. Uh, it was my fault. Uh, I, I hadn't booked dates far enough out in advance. Uh, it cost me and my crew money, and, and uh, you know, I was really close to my crew, so I set them all down, and I just took the blame for it because it was my fault, and I explained what happened, and I always tried to do that in my wrestling companies, all of my companies. 
to be honest with my guys and then take the blame when it was my fault. So uh, obviously Knoxville provided the big payoffs every month and the loss of that income from the boys, it, it really hurt them. And, uh, and it hurt me too. You know, I felt worse for them than, than I felt for myself. I had a crew that was inspired and working really hard to build my company. That is, is a blessing for sure. And they understood the significance of the loss of Knoxville for two out of four weeks, and not just because of what it cost them, but what it cost us all in momentum. We were selling these buildings out now, and I, we didn't want to back off and uh, to miss cards. It was bad for us. could have been very bad for us. Like I said, they were a great crew, working hard, and maybe even harder in the cities that we end up running instead of Knoxville to replace Knoxville. Great group of guys to work with. Ron, you mentioned in the opening that you were still learning as a booker and as the owner of a wrestling company. What do you mean by that? Well, it, sometimes uh, it, it's something that we have not talked about, uh, about Southeastern wrestling. And, you know, and, and I think today is a great time for me to get into it. Uh, my development as young booker and owner, uh, it's coming along, uh, but it's slowly, uh, you know. And, and I just wanted to kind of sit down with fans here today and just talk about uh, my skill level in 1976. You know, I'd only been booking since I bought Knoxville, and that was in October of 74. So we're only 14 months into this Southeastern wrestling, and, and it's, I'm a booker for the first time in my life. I'm an owner for the first time in my life. And I've done pretty well in the first 14 months uh, when I bought Knoxville. It was getting most of his talent from the Tennessee Territory in Nashville. The only local guys I had in October 74 were basically Ron and Don Wright and myself. So I decided pretty early on that paying this 10% booking fee is not going to be good for me. I'm not going to be able to make it because I wasn't getting great talent from my money. So I was able to stop that arrangement and I quickly added Les Thatcher to the crew. I added Nelson Royal to the crew. Early in 1975, I brought in Dale Lewis, Dutch Mantell, John Foley, Danny Hodge. Uh, my angles weren't well thought out because I was a young booker and I really didn't know what I was doing. And I didn't have enough great talent to run any long programs. So business was slow. It was, it was difficult to increase it because I simply didn't have enough talent to work with. Uh, my Dale Lewis concept, my idea of having him shoot with fans, was a great idea because it really proved to fans that they had no chance against an ordinary wrestler, nor did anybody sitting in that building other than a wrestler themselves, and that was wrestling was more real as a result of, of them realizing that, you know, gosh, uh, these guys are really tough. So that all blew up my face when Danny Fox forced Dale Lewis to stomp one of these challengers in the face. And when I look back, I can see I, I wasn't creating angles that made sense or grabbed the wrestling fans' attention. And, and they didn't really have any reason to buy a ticket back at that point. So along came a few more good workers. Jimmy Golan, uh, Tommy Siegler, The Assassin, Rock Hunter, Ricky Gibson. I mean, uh, the better the talent got, the easier it seemed uh, for my, my ideas to work. Angles that became a lot stronger. And my programs, that which is a series of long matches uh, uh, involving different types of matches with the same guys, it became a lot easier to create. I had more talent. By the fall of 75, I was ready to turn myself babyface against two great heels, the Assassin and Rock Hunter. And I knew that was going to jump my business, but 
I got my collarbone messed up really big time, and it really cost me. It was the worst injury I'd ever had in wrestling at that point. I got some bad breaks, I, no pun intended, but it forced me to improvise. And that's what good bookers had to be able to do. You had to be able to improvise. So my brother came into the crew about the time Jimmy Golden was leaving. Norvell Austin arrives, Butch Malone arrives, Homer O'Dell, Don Carson, uh, and the superstars. I mean, I got a tremendous influx of talent in late 75 that carries me and starts me into 76. And it basically pops my territory. Uh, so uh, as my talent got better, it seemed that my ideas got better. So now I'm sitting with two very good heel teams here in uh, 76, in the winter of 76. The superstars are Norville Austin and Butch Malone. And uh, also two excellent single heels, Don Carson and Tor Tanaka. And heels are the foundation for drawing money. My foundation at this point in 76 is pretty solid. Now we come basically to today's card that we just talked about. There's three major angles on this one card. I could not do that. I couldn't have possibly done that 14 months ago or six months earlier. Uh, Butch Malone was turning babyface on this card. The superstars becoming the top tag team. And, uh, and I was about to place Ron Wright as an opponent for Don Carson, which Carson needed a strong opponent. A long program was now beginning between Robert and Jimmy against the superstars. I mentioned that earlier. That's going to carry us down the road. Another soon begin between me against Don Carson. And the third is going to start. Butch Malone is going to turn babyface, and he's going to end up wrestling against both Tanaka and Norvell Austin. So uh, great talent. Uh, mixed with sound booking, it just really creates big box office. So let's take a look at that box office side of this. I'd increase my attendance in the major city of Knoxville from basically about 1,500 people the night I took over in October of 1974. Now we were doing 4,000 events and only 14 months later. It was an increase of 150% in just Knoxville alone. And when I started there, there was only one town running other than Knoxville. That town drew less than 1,000 people. Now there's five cities running, uh, not including Knoxville. And those five cities averaged uh, in the past two weeks 11,000 fans a week. That attendance added to what Knoxville were now drawing uh, was around 15,000 or more fans per week. Uh, that compared to 1,500 Knoxville started out, and if you add that 1,000 for the only other town they were running, a total of about 2,500 fans in October of 74 was now 15,000 fans, 500% increase in the crowds. I'd managed to get things rolling pretty well for a young guy that didn't know anything about booking nor owning the company. I felt like those type of results I was really proud of. Okay, Ron, this is a good chance to take a break as we uh, let David Summers talk about Super Sudcast number 26, about the Lord Humongous, plus almost two hours of Ron's historic and hilarious stories from 1920 to the days of Jack Briscoe. And speaking of Jack Briscoe, his brother Jerry Briscoe will be on the next Super Sudcast. 
Super Studcast number 26 is still making fans. Everything from one of the best gimmicks ever, the Lord Humongous, described by the man who did it, Jeff Van Camp, to almost two hours of some of the greatest wrestling stories from its best storyteller, Ron Fuller, at tnstud.com or patreon.com slash studcast. Three unforgettable hours for only $2.99. Then get ready for the next great Super Studcast on Tuesday, March 17th, 2020. The Stud greets one of his best friends in wrestling, a man who has done it all and worked for or with the biggest wrestling companies in the world and also the brother of another great friend of Ron's and one of the best wrestlers in the history of the sport, former NWA world champion Jack Briscoe. Join us for Super Studcast number 27 with the great Jerry Briscoe at tnstud.com or patreon.com slash studcast. Saddle up for a ride into history with one of the most admired brother teams of all time okay ron before we go on i just want to ask you a quick question regarding what you were talking about about uh, being a young booker and, and such like that i've always heard and i just wanted you to confirm this for me or you know tell me i'm wrong i've always heard the best booking ideas they always were came up with in the car and those rides from town to town would that be true with you too <laughs> yeah that you know there's, there's a lot of truth to that i mean uh bookers uh bookers were usually wrestlers uh, if they weren't a wrestler, they they were at every town, obviously, and they rode with somebody. And uh, usually bookers would ride with sharp guys because bookers wanted to get input. It was necessary to do the best job you could possibly do. Everybody had an idea. You know, uh, some guys would give you ideas and uh, you would say, oh, that's great. But you'd walk away thinking, oh, my God, if I do that, I'm going to kill my town. <laughs> yeah, but you'd have other guys, uh, you know, as an example of Carson and the and the superstars that came to me with the Ron Wright angle. And I recognized instantly, wow, this is something fabulous, man. This will really do business. And so if I'd been riding in a car with those guys, I would have been ecstatic to get that idea. I was ecstatic with it anyway. But yeah, that was because guys spent so much time in cars. You know, back in the day, you didn't fly very much. You were in a territory, and most territories weren't big enough for you to have to fly. But you had these long trips, and you took real advantage of the long trip when you sat in a car with guys that could offer you good ideas. And, uh, yeah, that's— Well, and especially a guy—you said a guy like Carson is a guy you trusted. So, you know, it's it's easy to accept a good idea, especially from somebody that you trust. Yeah, yeah, you know, I mean, and, and you learn who to trust and who not to trust. You also learn who has a booking mind and who doesn't. And you'll go to that guy that's got that sharp mind and and you'll uh, you utilize it. You'll you'll take advantage of that. And he doesn't mind. I mean, I got the finding that wrestlers were sharp. The guys that were sharp and going to be bookers someday. And that's where a lot of them came from was guys that were in territories that finally got their break and said, hey, man, you got great ideas. Let's make a booker out of you. And so, yeah, riding in cars was a great way to get ideas. Okay, so where to now, Ron? Well, there were two TVs. Because we had this situation, we're not going to wrestle the next week. Uh, We're not going to wrestle until March 14th. The last show is on February 29th. We've got two weeks before we wrestle. So we have basically two television shows to promote this March 14th card. So let's talk about the first TV that we had, which was on Saturday, March the 6th. It's only eight days. 
before the show, but there's going to be another television before the show as well. So I'm going to describe this TV, but I'm going to do it in a short version because the personality profile on this show of March the 6th turns out to be one of the best personality profiles that uh, was ever done on Southeastern. So first match on March the 6th TV was toward Tanaka, and it obviously his manager, Homer Odell, against Rocky Smith, who was the former Mask Inferno. Tanaka won the match, and he and Homer uh, did the first interview. It was a good match. And actually, uh, Rocky Smith could have been pushed and uh, probably should have been pushed. He was a great talent. But anyway, Tanaka wins this match. And the Les wanted to show a video from the tag match from the February 28th, from the night of the tournament. He wanted to show the tournament match between Jimmy Golan and Robert Fuller and Norvell Austin and Butch Malone. And uh, obviously, Homer didn't want to watch it. You know, and uh, so Homer demanded, you know, Les said, you know, uh, Les said, hey, look, uh, Homer, you're here and you got, you, here's Norvell and you got Butch and uh, we want to show this video. And Homer says, absolutely not. I don't want that video to ever be shown on Southeastern Wrestling. And, and Les told him, well, you know, I'm kind of sorry to hear that, Homer, because, uh, you know, it's going to be on our personality profile today. So Homer got mad, and then uh, he's got to, to knock out there, too, and they storm off the set. I mean, they, you know, Homer, he, he don't get his way. He's like a big, spoiled kid, and, and he has to leave. So the second match on the show is Charlie Cook, and he won over Jerry Myatt, and he used his football tackle. That was his finish he, and because he was a football player. It made a lot of sense. And uh, Les was set up to do the second interview segment by himself. And he was going to spend it talking to fans about what was upcoming here, about the personality profile that he was about to do and how extremely important this profile is and that the guest is going to be Butch Malone. And, uh, you know, he put a lot of emphasis on the video. He had two minutes there in the commercial to do that and to tease people about the personality profile that's coming up. And out comes Homer again. He's by himself this time, and he's screaming at Les that you better not show that video, Thatcher. You know, and the studio crowd's booing him, but Les didn't back down. The stage was set. I mean, you know, Les says, hey, no. When he ended the commercial break, he says, you know, the interview, he says, uh, we're going to be back in two minutes after the commercial break here. And uh, we're going to watch what happens. The third match, I'm going to go ahead and finish the matches, but we're going to come back and we're going to describe this personality profile in, in real detail here. So the third match on this card is Southeastern champion Don Carson, and he's wrestling against Tommy Rich. Wow, good match. Uh, Carson won, obviously. He had to use his loaded glove to beat Tommy. Tommy is, even though he's not winning, uh, he's becoming a star. Uh, Carson did the third interview about his first ever title defense. And because I had won the match on the 29th of February, I got the title shot on the March the 14th in the Coliseum. My first chance at wrestling Don Carson and winning the Southeastern title. The fourth match was the new Southeastern tag champions, Robert Fuller and Jimmy Golden. Wow, where they studio was cranked when they arrived. And they wrestled against two of the guys that were in the tournament that they didn't wrestle. Don and Al Green, another great tag match. Uh, Rob and Jimmy won. This time it wasn't Rob with the fuller leg lock. It was Jimmy that hit big old Al Green with one of those drop kicks off the top rope. 
And uh, I didn't think Al Green was going to get up. And the next champions uh, ended the interviews, uh, <clears throat> the new ones. They, you know, those boys, are in, they got that interview right afterward. And uh, they talked about their return match against the superstars in the Coliseum on the 14th and that they were ready for it. They had beat them well. They, they had never been beaten. They had gotten themselves a win over the superstars, and they felt real comfortable about being able to hang on to the title. So I want to spend uh, most of the time, instead of talking about all of the TV, to talk about something that happened kind of spontaneously that day that far eclipses everything else on that TV show. And, and it happened in this particular show. Uh, the live profile opened up. Now it's live. It's done in, in Studio B. It's got that big separation, a big opening, two big openings, as a matter of fact, so that the studio crowd can see through the openings. They can actually see the people in the profile. And they all have these monitors all over the studio. So this is done live. And Les and Butch Malone uh, are sitting in those big old chairs that we use for personality profile. Malone had a darkened eye. I'm not going to call it black because Ron Wright had two really black eyes recently, but this eye's dark. But along with the black eye, Butch had a row of stitches, man, just above his eye. And Les drew a fan's attention to the eye, and he asked Butch, which was really nice, if he minded if the camera got a close-up. But Butch said no, he didn't mind. It was one of the first times anybody had heard Butch Malone speak on Southeastern. Uh, you know, he, he had been Homer was the guy. He didn't allow his boys to talk. And uh, this, you know, I think people were kind of freaked to hear his voice, actually, you know. And he said, no, I don't mind. You can show the stitches. So uh, uh, Homer's steel helmet had opened up a pretty darn good gash, 14 stitches to close it. And uh, the camera got the close up. The last asked for, and uh, boy, the close-up spoke volumes. Didn't have to say anything else about his wrestling reel. So Les opened with his thoughts about uh, what had happened the last two weeks that had been very difficult for Butch Malone, and Butch basically took it from there. He took Les and the fans on a journey, that personality profile, that went well beyond the normal five minutes that it normally did. Les and I both decided we're going to go as long as we need to go, we're going to see what we can get out of Butch Malone. And uh, so Butch started out and he talked about what had happened in this journey in the last three weeks of his life. He had been in the studio with me, arrived at eight o'clock that morning with me long before anybody else came. And we went in and edited that six-man Texas death match from February 22nd in the Coliseum. We edited a Pieces of the Robert and Jimmy match against him and Norvell, in which they beat him up and, and cut him up and banged him with the helmet. And we even uh, put in a piece of the match with me and Tanaka, in which Butch had come back to the ring all bloodied and bandaged up. So the studio crowd, when he basically less started this, they were totally silent. They had no idea of what to expect. They didn't know anything about uh, Butch Malone as a person. They didn't know anything about him as a wrestler other than he was a part of a heel team. And uh, when Butch started to talk, he was so calm and he was so humble. It was totally different than his uh, heel persona. He explained how he had become friends with Norvell Austin long before they came to Southeastern. And uh, he came to Southeastern expecting to be partners with Norvell. 
but he expected them to be clean wrestlers. He didn't expect them to be dirty wrestlers. Uh, he explained his instant dislike for Homer from the very beginning, and he was totally against allowing Homer to become him and Norvell's manager. But, you know, Norvell probably swung a lot of weight in this, and so, you know, he ends up with, with Homer, and he obviously doesn't like him. He talked about Homer in uh, real terms. Uh, he called him a, a reprehensible human being. <laughs> and I remember the word because I was surprised that some wrestlers don't know that type of word. But he described him as a reprehensible human being, a racist, and a total ass. <laughs> and, uh, you know, so the fans are sitting there, though. It, it's really odd to me when, when I think back on this personality profile. He hated the way, he said he hated the way Homer treated Norvell as a result of Homer being a racist, you know, and he said he never hid it. I told Homer what I thought of it. Hey, Ron, can I ask you a question real quick about that? Yes. Uh, you know, the whole saying that Homer was a racist, okay, obviously we're, we're talking the 70s here. Uh, you say that about somebody here in 2020, and it has a whole different meaning. I think you'll agree with me on that. But at this time period, you know, 1976, calling someone a racist, is does it have the sort of impact that it would, you know, all these years later? I don't know that it did in those days, but, uh, you know, the reason he did it is because he was a northern guy. He came from uh, Minnesota. And, uh, you know, being from that part of the country, things were different up there. And he had never, I don't believe he'd ever been around a person like Homer Hotel. And, you know, Homer wasn't working. Homer was Homer. He, you know, what you saw him when he talked on his interviews and, and what he did as a person, that was Homer Odell. And uh, it made sense to me that there's this guy who is, is from up north that, that has never been around this type of person before, and he sees him for what he really is, and he don't like it. So as this profile goes on, it's building a great story here about how a young guy from the North teams up with a guy from the South, the Norvell Austin, and then he gets screwed kind of, and he gets put under the thumb of a belligerent and, and, and just an ignorant person that poor Homer was. And he wasn't out there just making up a story. He's telling a true story, and it's really grasping his crowd. They're sitting there. They've done nothing. They're wanting to see what this guy's all about. And uh, it doesn't probably have the impact that it would have today if you were to say that. And some of those people out there watching probably in those days probably didn't realize what he's talking about, what a racist is. But uh, it had meaning to me. And, and, you know, and I think there was a lot of others out there that kind of felt the same way. OK, so please continue. Yeah, like I said, uh, you know, Homer treated Norvell poorly, not just uh, when he was out there in the studio, but uh, he he didn't have respect. He didn't have any respect for him. And none of us really liked that. But it was a different day and time. Uh, there's no excuse for that. But uh, back in those days, it was something that you dealt with. So he asked less. Uh, then after this, he says, uh, you know, he said, you know, Homer treats Norvell horribly. And he says, I don't like it. I never let Homer think I liked it. I always told him how I felt about him and what I felt about him. 
So then he asked Lesk if he could run that first video of the six-man Texas death match. And it, we had edited me and him at the point to where he was just getting the object out of his tights. And Norville Austin had me full Nelson and Rob's out of the ring. And my dad's on the far side of the ring beating the heck out of Homer. And then uh, he goes to punch me and I duck and he hits Austin by mistake. So uh, then he described uh, what he told uh, to both uh, Homer and, and Austin in the dressing room before the match. Before they even went to the ring, you know, he backed up. He said he watched a little bit of it and he goes, wait a minute. And he goes, I want to tell you what I told them. They, he said that Homer suggested that I take this and put it in my tights and use it. And he said, I told Homer I'd never done anything like that before. Carrying something in the ring was not what I do. It's not a part of me. I don't want to be a part of it either. And then Homer, he said, demanded it. He, he said, it's precisely the reason that you're the guy that ought to carry it is because they're not going to check you like they're going to check me in Austin. You know, and he said, I thought it was repulsive to put me in that position. Then it, when the video showed Butch hit Austin and then, the, you know, we cut pretty much right away and showed him then hit Tanaka when Tanaka had me full Nelson. And uh, there he made a second mistake. He'd done hit Austin and he hit Tanaka. He said, to the fans and to everybody listening. He said, I knew I was in big trouble. And, and especially when we lost the match, he goes, then I'm really in big trouble. He says, that's why I left the ring. That's why I ran to the dressing room. You know, he said, and nobody knows, I, you know, you can't imagine what I went through in the dressing room when they all three got in there. So he's putting together a case here that's pretty solid. You know, he had then asked him to show the second video. The partner with him and in Austin's match with Robert and Jimmy from the weekend before. And it showed Austin holding Rob on the apron of the ring. And Butch says, you know, uh, hey, right here, Homer's screaming for me to, to run across the ring and, and come back and hit Rob with a big high knee. Robert with a big high knee. And he said, I did what I told. I was told to do. But, you know, when I went in the air and, and I'm about to hit him and he, he ducks out of the way, he said, Naturally, I hit Austin, and Austin happened to fall on top of Homer, who's sitting there. And he goes, I'm sorry, but Homer's sitting on his fat butt, and he got fell on, you know. <laughs> so he's, he's doing a darn good job of presenting his case. And he said, it's just another accident, you know, just like the two before where I hit the wrong guys. And he said, watch here. He says, Homer demanded me to come out on the floor. Once I got out there, he cursed me like a dog, you know, and, and, he, and then it showed the videos. He's following the video here. He said he brought me out onto the floor and then now he's cursing me right here. And he says, watch this. He slaps me. And he goes, boy, when he slapped me, he said, I wasn't going to take it. <laughs> so he said, I, I, I got in his face and he said, I went for him. You know, I, I'd had enough of Homer. So then he said, and then my so-called friend, he said, Norvell, he sneaks around behind me and he grabs me from behind. And he said, that's when that fat guy takes that steel army helmet off his head and he hits me above my eye with that helmet. And it, the film shows exactly what he's saying. So, and then he admitted, he goes, I've never been sewn up in my life until last Sunday because it's the first stitches I've ever had in me in my life. So he watched and he described Homer and Austin, then picking him up on this video and throwing him back into the ring. And, you know, and he points it out. He says, and I'm unconscious. 
goes, he's knocked me out with this steel helmet. Now they've thrown me back into the ring. And he goes, Robert Fuller covered me. And he said, who could blame him? I'm laying there. I'm bleeding. I'm out. And he says, uh, then, uh, you know, they counted me out. He said, I lost. He said, I don't even want to go into describing how I felt losing the chance at being some kind of Southeastern champion. That opportunity disappeared for me right there in my life, you know. And then he described what was on the screen that, that he couldn't remember because he hadn't even seen it. You know, he says, hey, then Homer and Austin, Robert and Jimmy leave the ring with their belts, which I, nobody can blame him for that. But I'm laying there unconscious. And he goes, look at this. He goes, Homer and Austin, they get back in and they just start putting the boots to him. They're kicking him and stomping him. And finally, Ron Wright comes down to the ring. You know, Ron Wright, a good old guy, he sits up there and watches it. And he goes, well, I got to do something. So Ron goes to the ring and uh, Don Wright shows up there at the ring. and. Uh, Obviously, Homer and uh, Norvell head to the dressing room, and they get old poor old uh, Butch up, and they put his arms around his shoulders, and they kind of carry him back to not the heels dressing room, but to the baby faces dressing room. So then he says, "Let's look at this last piece," and uh, it starts with Homer demanding to Tadaka pull me up from a two count. We start right at the end of the match. Homer's been booting me around on the floor while Tanaka draws the referee away. And now Tanaka's got me beat. And Homer says, no, pull him up, pull him up. He ain't had enough. So Butch describes what he's seeing. He says, it looks like it's typical Homer. He, he, he wants Tanaka to kill him. So then all of a sudden, the, the, here the video shows what actually happens. And here comes Butch down. He's got his head wrapped in a towel, probably, I guess. And it's as bloody as a towel can be because they've not taken him to the hospital yet. And he wants to get even. <laughs> so, you know, here he comes and he attacks Homer. Now, you know, Tanaka's got me down. He could have won the match, but he's, he, he let me up. And now he's trying to save Homer, reaches over the ropes, and I put the pin on Homer, and I go. So, you know, once Tanaka gets out there, I leave the ring. And, uh, and not long behind me, uh, Butch leaves the ring. But he's leaving as another person, you know, at this point. So there's been no, no reaction from this crowd. They, they're sitting there. They watch all this. And then when they see him come back, the reaction is exactly the same as it was in the building. Every one of those 4,000 people went absolutely crazy when they saw him come back and start on Homer Odell. And the people in the studio are watching this video. And when they saw it, they reacted again to it, just like those people at the building did. And it wasn't just happening in the studio. It was happening at home. And uh, for fans all across the Southeast, a big-time heel had just become a huge, powerful babyface. Okay, Ron, now it's time to get a glass of that nice, sweet tea, fill it with ice, get yourself ready, because it's time to sit under that old learning tree, Ron. Where are we going today with that? Okay, today's learning tree question comes from a gentleman named Terry Mason Barfield. His question is, and, uh, you know, uh, it's a statement, basically, in the first part, and then he's going to ask a couple of, he says, Wrestlers were valued at how well they could sell. Please explain selling, how hard it was to learn the art, to read the crowd, and then to work to it. Great question, man. Uh, several questions here, two or three questions, but uh, it, it's it's something I don't think that I've ever gone into before. And uh, 
when I saw this question, it, it really intrigued me. And uh, I've been looking forward to answering it. So I'm going to start this one out by uh, it, it giving people a description of what selling means in wrestling to me. It's just kind of my description of selling uh, as a professional wrestler. It's kind of a term that describes how well you take and how real you make an opponent's move look in a match. A guy hits you, how do you sell that punch? A guy puts a hold on you, how do you sell it? A guy suplexes you, how do you... And, and the way you sell it is what the fans believe. And, and it's also, it makes your opponent look in a way that you, you should want your opponent to look. So it doesn't apply to just one move in a match. It, it applies to every move in an entire match. Uh, so no matter whether it's a simple wrestling move, a punch, or a chair shot, in my opinion, selling in today's wrestling is seldom done anymore. And it's the major reason I, I believe that the sport has changed so dramatically over the years. Wrestlers don't sell anymore. Uh, so today's wrestlers, I don't think they know how to sell. And, and maybe much worse, they don't even know why it's important to sell. They don't seem to train them with the fact that this is a part of it. So uh, in today's wrestling, devastating-looking moves are not only kicked out of right away, but they're followed almost instantly by another devastating-looking move. The, the wrestlers, the young wrestlers, and even seems like the older guys, they've lost the concept and the realism that selling brings to wrestling. It couldn't be the sport that it was without people selling. So... It's now a sport that's more just an exhibition of finishes, back to back. Let's do this one. Let's do this one. Let's do this one as quickly as possible. And it just screams that none of it's real. I mean, Ron, you know, yeah. Yeah. Let me just point out, you know, uh, on my own podcast that I do with Barry Rose, one of the things we brought up, we reviewed a match from Georgia in 1982 with one of the great underrated tag teams from that time period, which is the mass superstar, Bill Eadie, and the super destroyer, who was Scott Hogg Irwin. Scott Irwin had this move that was the superplex, which is, of course, the suplex off the top rope. And no one had ever seen that move in 1982. And a lot of uh, different publications uh, voted that as the move of the year. And now, I mean, I realize we're, we're quite a ways away from that, but it's not even a transition move anymore. It's yeah. just like a spot thrown in the middle of the match where that was a killer finish in 1982. Yeah. So, you know, that's the point I'm trying to make here. I mean, uh, what do you have to do for it to hurt you? And if you don't sell anything, how can people believe anything? How can they believe any part of it? You watch it and you go, wow, geez, that guy ain't going to get up. And he kicks out. Then they just jump up and start into another spot. So the best way to explain the importance of selling, I think, is to, to go back to my grandfather, Roy Welch's day. He started wrestling in 1924. The average match back in those days lasted 45 minutes, and some of them had lasted as long as two hours. And when a wrestler took a hold on another wrestler, they might stay in that hole for sometimes 20 minutes or more, fighting to get out. Hell, Johnny Valentine used to do the same style back in 1973, and he was on top. People believed in Johnny Valentine. So by doing this, they were indicating that this hole is painful. It's hard to get out of. And therefore, it's real. You know, I mean, it, it, it was a very simple concept, but it laid the foundation for the entire match that followed. 
If you start out that way, people start believing from the beginning. As the match goes on, they just really, really believe even more. So when something more difficult and appearing more hurtful, such as a simple body slam is done after you've been in several holes for 20 minutes, that's potentially the end of the match. And, you know, the wrestler being slammed, he sold that bump strongly. I mean, he arched his back. He rolled over on his stomach and he reached for his back. And then he rolled out of the ring and he fell onto the concrete floor. The entire audience believed it was devastating. That simple body slam was devastating. That's all it took to have a great match in my granddad's day. You know, that was a finish. And, and, you know, then it started to morph into something more. But it was realistic and believable because the wrestler sold it. That's what made it realistic and believable. Today's matches are just short, high-flying, endless, and meaningless bumps that don't mean anything because they aren't sold. So how can you be suplexed from the top rope, then jumped on by your opponent from the same top rope as you're laying there, and then kick out at the count of two. If that isn't unbelievable enough, in today's matches, they get up instantly after kicking out and do another devastating bump and kick out of that, and then another one and kick out of that. How can anyone believe that? No one is selling. And believe me, no one out there in that audience is buying that it's real. So, you know, I mean, that's, that's kind of where it is. Lots of people ask me today, how could you bring professional wrestling back? So, you know, no one sells. You know, it's, uh, that's the problem. I've just described the exact problem in today's wrestling. No one sells. They're, they're, none of the wrestlers are trained how to sell. It's a lost art. And it's the most negative change that is now affecting wrestling. So let's answer Mr. Barfield's second question. How hard was it to learn the art? Well, <laughs> I love this, you know. The quick answer to me is it, is it wasn't difficult at all. Uh, back in my day and back in my father's day and certainly back in my granddad's day, if you didn't sell, you got the hell beat out of you and you were looking for a different job the next day. I mean, you didn't sell back in those days. They just tromped your face in the mat and then you went looking for another job. It wasn't hard at all to learn to sell because everyone in those days was trained to shoot first. That's where we're so far away from, from my grandfather's time. They don't know how to shoot. They know nothing about it. Everything you learned back in those days was real, and it really hurt you. When you feel the pain of a real hole and you're shooting, uh, you don't forget it. You have an idea to how to sell it and to show how it feels because you felt it yourself. When you're in the ring in front of fans and you did your best, to do moves without hurting your opponent. That's what it was all about. You did moves that could hurt them, but you tried not to hurt them. You learned to sell because it was the basis for realism. Slams hurt. Suplexes hurt. Sleeper hose, properly applied, hurt. The fuller leg lock really hurts when you put it on somebody. You can break their leg. All kinds of things hurt when you shoot. And if you wanted to be a professional wrestler back in the day, you paid that price. You learned how to shoot. My father always told me when he showed me a new move, if it doesn't hurt, kid, you ain't going to remember how to get it, and you certainly ain't going to remember how to properly apply it. So, you know, today's wrestlers need to experience more pain and training to be able to portray it in their selling. 
And I think that's where business needs to go. Uh, you know, they need to feel that pain if they're going to be able to sell it. In essence, how do you show what you don't know? How the hell can you sell if you've never felt what it really feels like? So some train wrestlers in a softer manner and others <laughs> broke their students' legs, as in Hulk Hogan's case, or busted their eyes the hard way, as my dad used to do on many occasions to guys that wanted to learn how to wrestle. Uh, you either train them in a baby's type of fashion. I'm not going to hurt you here, you know, uh, or you hurt them a little bit. And they go, wow, that's real. You know, that geez. And, that, and I know exactly how that hurt. And then they show it in the ring when they get into that type of move. You had to earn back in the day to be called a, a wrestler. You had to earn that right to be called a wrestler. You had to go through horrible shoots and uh, you had to do some terrible things. There were a lot of guys in the sport that made it easy for wrestlers to learn to sell. My grandfather was one. My father was one. Eddie Graham, Johnny Valentine, Stan Hansen, Danny Hyde, Jack Briscoe, Bruiser Brody. Those guys will beat the hell out of you. They'll teach you how to sell real quick. It was easy to do that, you know, easy to learn that way. And they'd hurt you without even trying to hurt you. So you get in the ring with one of those guys and you learn to sell real quick. Uh, it's a much different day and time, obviously. Long before this time I'm talking about, it's long before Vince Jr., the owner of the largest wrestling company in the world today uh, went before the New Jersey Athletic Commission and broke kayfabe and told the world. Thousands of dedicated wrestlers back uh, as far as my grandfather who gave their bodies and their lives would have broken Vince McMahon Jr. into little pieces for just what he did in that uh, New Jersey courtroom. Every wrestler had his own style of selling. I was one of the tallest wrestlers ever and over 260 pounds. My style had a good, I could have worked like Bruiser Brody, but I decided early on that, that I wanted to be just as fast as a small guy. I wanted to be able to have a great match with anybody. Each wrestler got to choose his own style, his unique style of selling, and they all had a unique style. Great workers were always great sellers, though. I mean, to be a great worker, you had to be a great seller. And if I thought my opponent made his moves look good enough to sell it, I tried to make them look good, and I sold everything they did that looked good. Uh, it was smart business as a wrestler because your opponent looked good. You make your opponent look good, and you ended up winning. It made you look even better. you know. And if you didn't sell, your opponent didn't look strong, and when you won, you hadn't really beat anybody. you know. So the win was meaningless. In my opinion, it took away from the value of a win to not sell for somebody and then to go over and think that you've beat somebody or have the fans think that you've beaten somebody. So in my opinion, uh, most of the guys who really got over and made big money figured this out, and they figured it out early. Great sellers had great matches. They did less work in the ring than other guys had to do, and they got a hell of a lot more out of it than other wrestlers. Uh, they also had a lot of friends and respect in the business. You know, and, I hate to put it that way, but that's really true, too. You know, uh, guys that could sell for you and you had these phenomenal matches with, you respected those guys and they were your friends. And the final question here today was uh, learning how to sell. After learning how to sell, how did you learn to read the crowd and work to it? Well, this one is pretty simple, too. Obviously, reading the crowd is as easy as having ears. You know, the, the crowd tells you everything you needed to know. 
And uh, they tell you whether they're enjoying the match or not by their sound. If you are in the ring with a great seller, you're going to always get that crowd into it. Heels always called the match. That's the way the business has always worked. Sometimes there might be a problem because you had a young heel trying to call the match, and he wasn't getting it done. So because I'd been both a heel and a babyface, I'd sometimes take over calling the match right in the middle of the match, you know, even though I was the babyface and and work to the crowd to get them. So experience in the ring meant everything. Smart wrestlers took no offense ever at giving up control of a match. Uh, the bottom line was always the fans' enjoyment. Every wrestler that was successful knew that, and there was no room for big ego in, in the sport uh, back in my time frame. And uh, my dad's and my granddad even before him, uh, no nobody had room for that big ego. And and nothing was more important than making the fans happy every time you got in that ring. So uh, thank you very much, Mr. Barfield, for your question. And uh, and I hope I've adequately answered it for you today. Okay, Ron. <clears throat> Once again, a great learning tree. I got a quick question as I'm sitting here listening to you uh, talk about guys we're selling. Let, let's go back to the the time period that we're doing on this particular podcast and tell me, excluding yourself, naturally, who was the best baby face in your crew at this point at selling? Let me think here. You know, I got to think of who's in my crew. Probably Jimmy Golden. Okay. Jimmy Golden was a great seller. And then Jimmy always had great matches with just about anybody. But I have had some tremendous young guys as, as sellers. Uh, Brad Armstrong was a tremendous seller. I mean, uh, not only did he have one of the best drop kicks and he could, he could fire, he had everything, but he became, like I said earlier, respected and admired and friends with everybody in the business because he could sell and he didn't mind doing it. He knew it was part of what it took to become great. And he, in my opinion, was one of the greatest of all time. Uh, it's a shame his career ended as, as early as it did. But uh, Brad Armstrong was a tremendous seller. Oh, amen. Big, big, big fan of Brad. Okay, folks. So as we start to uh, do the go home on Facebook to become friends with the stud, you just go to Ron Fuller, the Tennessee stud, like his page, and you become friends with a legend on Twitter at Ron Fuller Welch. Uh, we remind you the super stud cast at tnstud.com or patreon.com slash studcast. Super Studcast number 27 will release on Tuesday, April 14th, and will be with the great Jerry Briscoe. Ron, where are we going next week, my man? Well, we're, we're going to be setting up for another Coliseum show on March the 14th, 1976. Uh, this is another great card. We'll be talking about it uh, next week, the entire card. We're going to talk about the TV that promotes it, the results of that show, the attendance for not just that show, but for the other shows that week, and the payoff for the week. We're also going to discuss Southeastern's debut in uh, West Virginia. We're expanding two states away from where we are. It's a big project. I've spent a lot of time working on it, and we are just about to reach that point. On March 22nd of 1976, the Southeastern will make its debut in West Virginia. The Learning Tree next week is going to be on a subject similar to the one that we just did. But uh, this one is going to be about a question I've gotten from a lot of people. Uh, I'm going to uh, mention one name in particular, but it is about how could anybody possibly bring back professional wrestling to the old days? 
And uh, I'm going to take that even to another level next week in my answer. This next learning tree is a great one. I'm really looking forward to it. And I'd like to thank everybody out there, Jeff, uh, for riding with me today and riding with us today. And uh, may God bless us all. Okay, so on behalf of uh, Ron Fuller, the Tennessee Stud, our producer, Sweet Lou Kippelman, I am Jeff Bowden, reminding you that the uh, Studcast is a production of the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network. And until next week, when the ride continues. Thanks for joining us today for this historic Studcast. The true story continues next week. So full Nelson, your friends, and point them in our direction for another ride with the Tennessee Stud. This is David Summers saying so long from the Great Smoky Mountains.